0: Welcome to Rerouting the City with Applied Wayfinding, a spatial experience design practice that makes complex spaces legible. Rerouting the City is a new three part podcast series that navigates how we move around our cities today. Each episode, we invite an expert speaker from across neuroscience, academia, and city planning for a conversation with a member of Applied's team to discuss the new research and technological developments that could help reroute our urban spaces to be more accessible and enjoyable for all their users. Hello and welcome to Rerouting the City. I'm your host, India Block, and I'm joined today by Applied Information Group's Ruth Ross MacDonald and Dom Hyams, Head of Strategy at Purple Goat Agency. And today we're going to be discussing the role of technology in designing accessibility in our urban spaces. To kick us off, Ruth, Dom, are you happy to introduce yourselves and a bit of the work that you've been doing? Yeah, sure.
1: Hi, I'm Ruth. Um, I'm a Digital Creative Director at Applied. And we focus on making integrated wayfinding systems to navigate people through cities and buildings. And we focus on both the physical space and the digital space.
2: And hi, really nice to be here. Um my name's Dom, head of strategy, as you mentioned. Um, and Purple Goat essentially is the world's first and only disability led, inclusion focused marketing agency. So we work with brands to create the most forward thinking, progressive and authentic campaigns out there. And uh, we activate the disabled community and wider population in doing so to make things as kind of progressive and authentic as possible.
0: Great. And to start, I wanted to know, what does an accessible city mean to both of you? Do you have any personal favourites when it comes to cities that are accessible? I personally really enjoy um, Venice's silent airport. Uh, or are there any ones that are particularly bad for for getting around. I'm not a very good natural navigator, which makes it quite difficult to get
1: around in a city. Uh, Generally, I find that places that are noisy and there's a lot of clutter on the street, like uh, downtown in San Francisco, for instance, there's a lot of different types of transport going past. There's lots of signage everywhere. It's quite difficult for you to kind of orientate yourself and know where you are. Um, I think for me, an inclusive and uh, accessible city is around creating spaces where you can understand where you are and not get lost so those things are based around having long sight lines not too many maze-like environments or if there are that then it opens up into an open space so you can have start to create a mental map and understand sort of where you have been and where you're going Um, in terms of favorite cities uh, to navigate I find Barcelona really easy I think although it does have sort of some districts, which are um, lots like mazes, they always kind of open up into a larger space so you can kind of walk around and around and around and then pop out somewhere and you don't feel lost even though you're not entirely sure where you are. Um, that's a great city. I think uh, Berlin is great for cycling. So in terms of accessible, it it's really feels really safe. The cycle paths are really consistent um, and it's probably the best city that I've been in in terms of navigating on a, on a bicycle. And then the worst one, and not because of the navigation, just because of uh, how you feel when you're trying to walk around the city, I think is Bristol. And uh, I think that's because there's lots of e-scooters and bicycles all over the pavements. It's quite hard to distinguish what is a pedestrian cycle and what is a cycle path. And if you're not um, used to the sheer amount of traffic, then it feels a little unsafe because you can quite often find yourself in the wrong lane somebody almost knocking you over um but it is a fantastic city to be in (laughs) and quite easy to find where you are
2: cool you definitely um took some of mine in terms of favorite cities i think barcelona is a really accessible city you know the actual transport links are really good from a disability perspective and an accessibility perspective um i'm a powered wheelchair user for those that are listening that don't know um and so obviously i'm always thinking about stairs steps level access uh navigation around sort of you know metros and how accessible that can be and and of course comparing it to what it's like here where we have a very old underground system where not everything is that easy to navigate even though we feel that the UK should and could be quite progressive in its approach I think yeah Barcelona's great um Oslo I think is really progressive in the way it approaches accessibility um anywhere in the states like within reason there's just a natural inclusivity and accessibility because it's mandated um and so that can't be ignored so i feel a reassurance when i basically travel anywhere in the united states and and then i suppose one more is tokyo because a lot of tokyo you go there and you're like they just do it better than we do and it makes you realize that you're you know the UK is much more fallible in how progressive it is um than when you maybe grew up and thought you know we we must do everything the best here uh, but I think you travel the world and realize that's not necessarily the case
0: and as you mentioned you use a powered wheelchair what are the kind of processes that you have to go to if you're planning a journey around a city kind of mentally physically what sort of goes into that
2: yeah, we were talking about this the other day and I would like to say that I'm a very spontaneous person and I just am confident enough to approach any new location and just go through it. And then when you actually break down the process of that, I will still do a sort of sense check as I'm about to navigate somewhere new. So even something as simple as knowing that I've got an accessible route from A to B, um, using something like Google Maps and knowing that there's accessible ways to do it. Um, but then also like, okay, when am I leaving? Is that same route available in the evening? Um, are there taxis in that location? Are there accessible taxis in that location? I, I suppose I always am thinking about the plan A, which usually is quite straightforward. But then I also need to think about the the kind of plan B and the plan C sometimes, and you suddenly realise, wait a minute, maybe I'm not as spontaneous as I, I thought I was. Because, you know, if I'm going to a specific location, I'll be thinking about the accessibility of the venue, let's say a restaurant or something like that. Um, I'll ring them up and ask about wheelchair access. And also if I'm doing a booking, I'll make them aware that I'm coming in a wheelchair. Um, so there are a number of things that I'll be doing on any given trip or, you know, visiting any new space that becomes habitual so I don't really think about it but it's totally ingrained in the process I go through when traveling somewhere new or even somewhere I'm I'm used to going.
0: And you mentioned Google Maps there um has technology made it easier to navigate a city?
2: Yes I think always with the caveat that technology is technology and sometimes it will you know direct you up a vertical staircase and say that that's an accessible route but like the reality is there is now things like filters that show you accessible premises um more accessible routes and so you can utilize them and they can be very helpful um you know i often find that like cycling routes can be quite helpful for a wheelchair because they're not necessarily going to be upstairs and my wheelchair can go quite fast so i can just you know, get myself in a streamlined cycle lane and just bomb it down a, a sort of highway as it were and that actually can be quite a useful way of navigating a city so it's it's having the technology there but then being confident enough to know when to use it and when not to use it because you don't want to sort of blindly end up going over a cliff <laughs> because yeah, I know that those kind of stories exist of people using the sort of technology and just treating it as the gospel because you, you know obviously you you have to have that kind of human element to the interaction as well.
0: Ruth, you have a background in assistive technology software. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work there?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, previously I worked uh, for a company called CareScribe and they create assistive technology for um, students. Mainly originally it was focusing on users who have uh, hearing impairment. So during COVID, a lot of the universities. You couldn't actually go on site, and the lectures were held online, and some of those were pre-recorded lectures as well. And they, a lot of the universities, because it wasn't legislation at the time, they weren't providing captions. So you've got a whole group of people who haven't been able to get access to the materials. Um, Some of those people, they would have had um, additional human support in the lectures if they were in the physical um, lecture itself. So what we did is we created a piece of software that captioned uh, pre-recorded material and it could caption in the live sense as well. Um, Although there are lots of other kind of software solutions out there, one of the main problems is that uh, specific subjects like medical um, degrees and things like that have a very particular uh, dictionary of words which general kind of captioning software won't be able to pick up effectively. And what that means is that one word being wrong in in captions could completely change um, what the conversation is, and that was alienating people not to have access to um, education that they had paid for. So uh, we created uh, captioning software, and also off of the back of that, when we started to uh, increase the use cases for it, we also created uh, note-taking functions inside of that, which helped us to expand the feature set, and also to to uh, provide solutions for people with other neurological issues such as ADHD and dyslexia, so people who who struggle with paying attention could now create those uh, transcripts and then take notes of those transcripts as well inside the software itself so they could keep going back to it.
0: When you talk around accessibility, there are a lot of kind of like buzzwords, jargon. Is accessibility the best word to use, do you think, when it comes to these sorts of conversations?
2: this probably might be a game of snap, but inclusive design would be like a more natural way of approaching it from the ground up. So accessibility is obviously like almost the symptom. Um, You want spaces to be accessible for everyone. But if you are designing things inclusively from the start, then that natural accessibility will be there for everyone. So I think that, you know, the the gold standard is thinking around things from the outset as being open and accessible and inclusive to, to everyone. And then that means that there's less things to retrofit and, you know, make right later on because it's just there from the outset. And as kind of Ruth mentioned, actually doing that creates a better system a better inclusive environment for everybody you know features that typically have sat within the realm of accessibility and for disabled people actually have huge tangible benefits to everyone a, a really basic example is you know captions on the tv you know we that obviously was created for certain communities but now I think it, there's a, a statistic that something like eighty percent of content consumed on on Netflix has the captions on at the moment, and that's what of see because everyone actually finds it kind of helpful and and useful to have the captions on, and they can keep the volume lower and all things like that. So um, so it's just that kind of approach and that inclusive design to everything really that I would sort of coin a little bit more, I suppose.
1: I think it's it's a really interesting um kind of topic because. With most things you can't define them by a single word. And like Don was saying, if you start to um try and define something with a single word, it's not going to be a catch-all. So if you start to design things which are inclusive to begin with, there's less need to, to actually have that single word that catches it. And people aren't people who don't kind of resonate with those words, then would could be a
0: world where we don't even need to talk about it. And Inclusive design, also called universal design or zero harm. Um, The ideal thing for designers, for urban planners, for the people making technology is that everyone can use it, but that is actually a lot harder, I imagine, when it comes to creating something rather than something that can only be used in a very specific use case where you can sort of control all of those variables. Uh, it's an interesting one
1: I think um, especially in the digital world like everything that needs to be built and created has to start with solving a problem so first it's identifying what is that problem and then who's who are you serving the solution for so I don't think everything needs to be inclusive to everybody all of the time because one that's absolutely impossible lots of people have varying degrees of needs or multiple needs so it's more about making sure that when you are scoping out a project or you understand that what the problem space is so that the solution that you come up, out with is fit and right for that purpose. Now, there are pieces of software which are B2C, which are open to everybody, and it's more important there. But if you're talking about something which is um, just for a single use case or a single need, then it's very much defined around what the problem is that you're solving to make it fit for purpose. In answer to the question, is it more difficult? Yes, <laughs> it is more difficult. I mean, there is a baseline, um, which everybody should have did. All designers should really know, especially working in the digital space. They don't. However, there are lots of nuances on top of that. So, yeah, I think, yes, it is more difficult. And, and sometimes, depending on what you're trying to prove or if it's a innovation piece or if it's a minimum viable product, then you could argue that there is isn't a need at that point in time if you're trying to validate something for it to be completely inclusive but when it starts to grow and it starts to be available to more people then 100% it should be considered at that point
2: We like always advocate for the innovation not being stifled and if the innovation further down the line can benefit everyone but actually you need to get that MVP out the door for it to prove it's worth um then that's something worth doing for everyone to then like bake in the inclusivity uh, kind of particular markers over time saying that though if you get the community round the table from the outset all of the things that feel very difficult suddenly become a lot less difficult because you're naturally baking in that inclusivity right at the start Um, yes like designing a website from the ground up in an accessible way takes extra consideration but once you have that knowledge and you have the people there to test it check it make sure it's you know appropriate that is a kind of iterative process that is there from the start so I think that we would always advocate for things being proportionate um because the idea that you're just waiting for the moment of perfection to arise the reality is if you're doing that you're never going to actually baking accessibility at all because we're never going to get to perfection but the reality you know is that you should try and just make those baby steps and iterate and develop practices over time and and not stifle innovation along the way
0: I was interested in what you said earlier as well Dom and Ruth you brought it up when you were talking about kind of meeting standards so in America things have to be specified as kind of accessible or inclusive from the outset whereas we don't have those regulations in the UK that wasn't something I was actually aware of.
2: I mean it's a it's a slightly grey area because the Equality Act in the UK and the ADA the Americans Disabilities Act in the US technically they would kind of say that they cover disabled people in a similar way but the litigation aspect of how things sort of play out In the US compared to the UK the stick feels much bigger in the US and there's whole industries around just litigating people if they see potential wrongdoing and they can make a fast buck from seeing that a mum and pop um, hairdressers is not accessible, and so and that could be digital or physical, and then they'll sue them because they're in, you know, they're violating the 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 act, and therefore they settle out of court most of the time, and that's just a process. Um, so therefore, in America, people know that they have to have that stuff in check from the outset, and it just is a given that accessibility is just much more considered because of the fear. Or of litigation, um, that's a really blunt and sort of basic way of explaining it, but but it kind of is true to to a large extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, in America, well, because quite a lot of our clients are American, it, using the word accessible is sometimes something that people would shy away from, if because that's when you can get sued. But using terms like step free, you can't get sued for that. So if you had an accessible route or an accessible, um ramp then that has to be ada standards and that would be um less than five degrees but if it's step free, then you're not kind of linking it to the ada standards but you're implying that somebody could go up in a wheelchair because even a single degree out in incline you could get suitable which is
0: very different to over here <laughs> very different that's so interesting and um applied has worked on a lot of I don't want to say accessibility in case you get sued, but um, projects in America, um, I believe one of them was a map for Central Park in New York. Could you talk a little bit more about the process for that? Were you actually doing any sort of changes to the physical routes or was it more about charting them? The brief really was to create a handheld
1: printed accessible map so that people can navigate around um, Central Park. It's a real common misconception that Central Park is flat. You think yeah, it's a big flat open space in the middle of the city and therefore, you know, you should be able to get around that if you had any sort of additional needs. So that was a problem that needed to be solved, that people needed to understand where they could go in that environment. And it has a range of lots of different types of slopes there as well. So it's not just, you know, there is a bit of an incline. We The project in itself um, was that we needed to be able to communicate the data on a map effectively for people to be able to navigate um, across the space in a way that was suitable for them. So where ADA standards state that a slope should be less than a, a five degree inclined to be wheelchair accessible, actually that kind of wasn't um, a good enough scale to put on the map because there were lots of different other sizes of slopes and it's not just about people in wheelchairs. There'll be people pushing buggies, somebody with crutches, for instance, and defining things by saying, "Okay, well, it either is wheelchair accessible or not, isn't a a broad range enough. So we designed a map that highlights uh, the slopes. And the primary focus was to um, use a set of design tools that would create uh, human-centred terminology so that people could understand what those slopes mean, because putting sort of five degrees, seven degrees who, well, I don't know what 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 degree of incline can I do, um. So the idea was that we created human centered terminology and then um created categories of slopes and that we classified three different ranges of slopes. Uh, one was flat or gentle, one was moderate, and one was steep. And then we created a key on the map, um, that described what each of those meant. So the moderate, I think, is the one which is wheelchair accessible. Um, so it had a little description as well as the classification itself. And then on the map, we used three different visual key identifiers to allow them to make the decision of what routes they would take based on those classifications that they could see. It was about putting that data into a human readable format that
0: people would understand. And you mentioned the digital tools there. What sort of went into the testing process? Did you get people in who use wheelchairs or buggies to to test it out, to give you a kind of sense of how easy it was or how those gradations like mapped onto their experiences yeah
1: sure so um there was a whole uh, user group that was used for testing throughout the whole process and that was a range of different needs um people of an older generation people in a wheelchair people who um had to use crutches for instance so that is what helped define those classifications for those slopes and also um we used them to
0: also test the map afterwards uh, and make sure that they were part of the process throughout the whole of it. Dom, is slope inclination something that you have to think about?
2: It's largely fine, and I always particularly surprise taxi drivers when I rock it up their very steep, ramp into the cab, and it's no issue whatsoever because it's got quite a lot of power in the wheelchair. Um, I once had. The experience I never hoped to have which was where I kind of couldn't see that the slope was almost like graduating more as it was going down and I was higher than I thought in the chair and my chair actually toppled forward it's only happened once and I, I hope it will never happen again but um but, you know, it's something I obviously have to think about. Um, the, the higher up I am in the chair, obviously the centre of gravity goes from being very, very low in the chair to uh, higher up. Um, so so I'm always kind of trying to be in a, you know, rocket mode, really low down to the ground, because then my centre of gravity is better. But, but absolutely, you know, slopes play a part. But then there's also things like the, the sort of, Climate, and um, if it's been raining, then things are slipperier, and things like that. Um, also, camber can be a real issue, you know. Whereas something can be quite gentle in its camber, but if you combine that with a slope and maybe it being wet or snowy or icy suddenly it can be a real problem you know I've, I've sort of slid sideways um off of kerbs before and I've, I want to see a sports car but don't tell them that um but 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 like you know so it can just be a combination of factors that really play into something not just a singular item and I'm sure it's that kind of thinking that you're thinking about when you're looking at that kind of you know park approach as well.
1: Yeah, especially the weather. And, you know, we kind of had moderate weather in the UK, but in America, it's really extreme. So, you know, some campuses, for instance, they'll only plough sort of like the main walkways So in the winter, when it's really, really cold, or also when it's really, really hot as well in the middle of the summer, people are going to be taking different routes around spaces so that they're not spending too much time exposed, or especially if somebody has to navigate in a wheelchair, they don't want to be pushing up a really steep hill when it's in the middle of the summer and it's boiling hot. So we have to take all of those things into consideration, which ultimately are quite difficult on a static map you can't put dynamic data on there but but that's where the digital uh, kind of realm can take over and start to um, give people the tool sets to be able to change the routes based on the time of day or even um, the weather and those sorts of things so that's where the integration between the physical and the digital mapping systems that we do really have two different kind of um, benefits at different times.
0: You mentioned campuses there. Uh, I know that you led on the applied project mapping Princeton campus. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Uh, My role on the project was the digital side. So we created a a mobile application that's called Princeton Campus Map. Um, We also have uh, physical maps across the whole of the campus which allow people to orientate themselves and understand kind of where they are Um, And that's great because the campus is massive and it's quite difficult um, to know where the buildings are or what the building names are, for instance, or how to get from A to B. With the Princeton mobile app, where that comes into play is that obviously you can't take a physical map with you. (laughs) Um, And once you've gone away from the physical map, then you might not have great recall of where you are. But also the main problem is, is that Princeton campus itself is quite inaccessible. Um, it's it's built on lots of slopes and it also has a lot of steps and a lot of old buildings as well so it's not ideal for anybody who can't go up a steep slope. Um, So we created a mobile application which is a navigation tool that allows people to choose their destination and create a route and they also have the option to create a step-free route so they can go across the campus which is is quite large and make sure that they know that they're going to be able to get to their destination without being confronted by a whole range of steps, for instance. We have a few other features inside of it as well. So the map itself, you can zoom into the map and multiple layers and you'll be able to identify where the steps are. And if you zoom in even more, you can see actually how many steps there are in each kind of set. Uh, We also have highlighted where the accessible building entrances are. So that you can, lots of the buildings are really big um, and some of the entrances are accessible and some of them aren't. So you can navigate the map and have a look and browse and find out um, which, bu- which building entrance is right for you. And there, you can also find out information about buildings. So on each point of interest, you can click on it and it'll give you some more richer information about each of those buildings themselves um, and what's inside of there and contact details too. So if you need to contact to confirm anything. Um, It's a great app. I mean, I've just been out there doing some usability testing and it was my first time on campus. Um, I've never been there before. It is massive. And I don't think I would have been able to get around without it, to be fair, Uh, which is fantastic that I managed to go whilst the uh, app had been released. Um, And I do wonder what my experience would have been like if I had tried to navigate uh, without it. it. It was interesting to do a test between Google Maps and our campus map Um, The campus is under loads of construction. It's probably the most that it's had. And that generally impacts some of the routes. So there might be um, lorries coming in that have to close off a certain route. And that might impact an accessible route. So they would then create an accessible route elsewhere. Um, And and all of the kind of campus impacts, they call them, which which is the construction that's going in on site, means that even people who are familiar with the site they actually have to take a different route than what they were used to. So inside of the app, we have the long-term campus impacts on there as well. Um, and as the site is changing, the we will change the map and then people will always know kind of where to go and how to route their way around. It It's great. And I think when we were just talking around weather as well, that's one of the issues on campus is that they do have really steep slopes and in the winter, it is also, that can be really icy and snowy. So we're looking at some... Features potentially in the future where we can have different layers over the map which will um, allow users to see where the uh, kind of ploughed routes are, for instance. Um, So, Because everybody's going to have a different experience depending on what time of year they go, go to the campus to. The difference is you can put all the dynamic data on there so as everything is changing we can keep it completely up to date. Whereas the physical system that we have in place is more about orientating yourself. And those have updates when there are updates to the map on uh, kind of twice yearly cadence. But with the digital map, we can update things as and when they happen.
0: That must have been a really interesting experience to have not physically encountered the campus while you'd been working on it. Do you think that helped to kind of be able to, you know, think about those routes in a different way? It was a really interesting one, to be
1: honest. I think... Because we were working in a larger team, there are a lot of people who were on the project who have been there and they know the campus like the back of the hand. Uh, But for me, for my particular experience, one of the things that I found that was really useful inside of the app when I was on campus is that when you click on a point of interest, there's an image of the building. So when I was on campus, I had already created... Um, a visual view of what the campus looks like so when I got there I could validate that I was in the right place and it it made me familiar with the environment even though i would never been there so I think for browsing and for use cases where the uh, campus map is used for um, visitors or uh, parents of students who haven't been there for being able to browse and become familiar with it or if your um, child is telling you about a certain place you can actually feel like you're connected to the campus even though you may not have been there before so I think it was strange in the sense that it in my mind it was a map but actually it wasn't it was beyond that in my mind it was more three-dimensional because I'd already seen pictures of the buildings themselves before I even got there so when I got there it kind of felt a lot more familiar.
0: Dom have you ever encountered kind of specific apps for places or I mean, what are the apps that you really rely on on a daily basis to navigate? So
2: two two apps that provide sort of strong accessibility data that, depending on where I'm going, I might use or not use so much is Sociability and AccessAble, um, both of which have a multitude of accessibility information in them. Um, Sociability is more kind of crowdsourced in it by nature, and Accessable is more kind of audit-based by nature but both have you know really strong merits to the way they approach things. I probably use Google Maps the most just because I am usually well aware of my needs and and usually vocal enough that I go hey can I get into your building kind of thing Um, because that's just the short shortcut to going where I'm going if that makes sense but In reality, like having that multitude of tools is really valuable and obviously is extremely beneficial for different sort of use cases and sorts of people. I also use Passenger Assistance, which is a a train um, booking app. Um, So that means that I know that in my local station that's only manned um, in the hours of the morning, night until 12, that if I... Book it in inverted commas two hours before what I'm going to, what train I'm going to be on. There will be someone at that station for me to get the ramp down so I can get on and off the train. It used to be, I think, 48 hours, and then it was 24 hours, and now they've got it down to two hours. So it's as close to turn up and go as they can do at the moment. Obviously, the the ideal situation and is that you turn up and go. And there's a lot of stations where I, of course, still do that because. I don't know, for example, today when I'm actually going to be back at a station, so I can't plan what train I'm going to be on in two hours' time. But the, those stations are much more equipped. You know, the bigger ones, the London Bridges, the King's Crosses, they're, they're much more equipped for me turning up and um, saying, hey, can I get on the train in five minutes' time? And they're like, sure. Um, and so that's that's obviously what I, what I do as well. I think beyond that, there's those apps that are just naturally baking in more inclusivity into their tools as well like something that might seem silly but like a there's a coffee app i use the coffee shop called best coffee and i noticed like maybe six months ago that they started to list accessibility features in there and that's really helpful because there's only so much information you can glean from browsing the images on on google maps or something and when it says oh yeah it's got a disabled toilet and it's got step three access suddenly i'm like oh great i'll go that 10 minute 15 minute detour to try it out instead again well i'm not sure and that'll be a waste of time if i go so the additional information gives you additional reassurance that actually you know planning your day in a way that can involve those things is not kind of going to be a waste of your time and doesn't add any kind of interpretation or anxiety to that process.
0: Ruth I know you do some work around cognitive load so as I understand it that's the sort of amount of working memory that we have and reading a map reading directions processing all this can be really taxing and we've spoken a lot about um, sort of physical needs when navigating but also there are the kind of the mental elements people who have cognitive disabilities or people who are neurodiverse how does that factor into your work with applied
1: uh it's a really interesting one actually i think in the both in the physical world and in the digital world we talk about um something called progressive disclosure so that's giving someone the right information to get to the next point but not bombarding them with everything. So you know, if somebody, if you go up to somebody and ask direction somewhere, and they say, "Oh, you take a left, you go three three blocks down, you take a right, you go four blocks, you take a right," and then by then you've already forgotten the first bit. So it's all about giving people the information that they need to get to the next step for them to make the next decision or the next point. And I think both we do that. That's how our kind of mapping systems work. Um, in Princeton, for instance, we've got big. Um, maps across the campus but then also in some of the trickier places we've got like little nudges so if you're looking for a particular building maybe there's a a big bush in the way and you wouldn't be able to see it physically you'd come along and then there'll be a little nudge and it just gives you that understanding that there's then a sign with an arrow that's got the building name so you you might have got to a point where you're starting to feel anxious because you're not sure whether you're on the right route but then there you are there's just a little nudge that gets you there And it's all about planning. So it's about understanding the phases of navigation as well. Um, I think we've already just talked about pre-planning. Quite often people will do stuff to make sure that that space is right for them or or so that they can become more familiar with the space when they're there, for instance, to uh, reduce the anxiety of being in that space. And lots of things can impact people's cognitive load. So we've already kind of discussed a noisy space, for instance. Um, If you're in an area, much like Princeton, where there is um, a big piece of construction going on, that's going to impact somebody's ability to be able to navigate and concentrate in that space. And, And so looking at kind of preferred routes is something that we might do as well. So lots of people, we've just done some usability testing and some of the stuff that came back was, oh well. In the day, when it's really noisy, I go this way because I want to go away from the construction sites and away from the noise because I just feel like it's too much for me, and it's too much because it's it's contributing towards their cognitive load. They're not being able to concentrate. They feel anxious. It makes their experience of navigating in that space very different, and therefore they take a different route for that reason. So it's really important to understand all of the influences of both the outside world and the digital world together and how uh, a kind of natural way to help somebody navigate in a a digital product is to give them step-by-step directions. And I find, like I said, I'm pretty bad at navigating and I always have Google Maps. Another thing that lots of people do is just um, validate where they are by the blue dot on the map. And then they're constantly looking at the map and they're not taking in the environment. They don't know where they are. They don't learn the route. And one of the things that I've recently started started doing is um, using the audio description, just having the map in my pocket and my headphones on. So then I'm actually looking where I'm going and, I, and it's telling me in my ear, turn left or turn right. I've got my hands free. I'm not looking at a screen. I can understand the environment. So I'm I'm reducing the cognitive load for myself by making sure there's not too much stimulus. If a city is really busy and hectic and noisy and there's cars everywhere and there's safety issues, the last thing you need is to not be actually looking in the direction that you're going. So I think that, and again, that could that's seen as an accessibility feature, the audio description. Well, it's not because I haven't got like all of the functions that I need to be able to use the app. It's more that's um, creating a better and easier and safer environment for me to navigate with. So it's interesting looking at what the environment presents and and how that can uh, increase cognitive load for users and then pairing everything back and giving them the tools that they need to be able to navigate the best that they can without increasing that cognitive load and making it difficult for them.
2: Without name-checking Apple too heavily, the day I got AirPods and I realised that was a feature, I was like... I feel like a spy because <laughs> you're suddenly just being navigated around without having to look at the phone. And, you know, I'm sort of sat there. I'm driving with one hand. I, typically, I've got a phone out in the other. There's no third hand to like hold something, for example. So So actually, that's been an amazing feature for me purely from the perspective of freeing up a hand which is something that you'd like don't really think about but it can be really really valuable and as you say you don't want to be just staring at a screen and um and it is a much nicer way to engage with the space around you um so and then you can also call someone while you're doing it as well so So it's like multi-benefits as well um although of course we don't want to just spend our lives connected but That is, of course, the way things are moving a little bit more. Uh, But yeah, absolutely, totally agree with that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was so annoyed when they took away the headphone jack, but actually, it has, having like hands free headphones has really changed the game, I think. Um, Thank you both so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I feel we could talk for another like hour about this. If there's anyone who's listening who, hasn't heard that much about inclusive design, who's thinking that they want to learn more about it? Are there any resources that either of you would recommend that have been really like interesting? Or
1: I think one of the first things that I always recommend um, for designers that I work with, especially junior ones who haven't been familiar with um, working in accessibility or with assistive tech or anything like that, is just to get the baseline there so W3C do a free accessibility course that you can do online it gives you a good understanding around the basics of what impacts people who have additional needs and how you can then take that understanding into creating more inclusive design so I would say that as a baseline for everybody it it should I think that everybody should have done something as simple as that course
2: I'm going to give you a half answer um In the same way that in like 2020 we had the spotlight on the Black Lives Matter movement and there was a kind of precedent for people having to sort of have a stock take and self-reflection and an education of themselves. Um, And actually, you know, essentially we were all empowered to sort of self-analyze and actually take the steps ourselves to upskill on on certain things i think that this is no different in that actually to be sort of a progressive citizen upskilling yourself around inclusive universal accessible design um is just part of that and once you go out there to the big wide world and the web and there's so much there like whether you're Sort of looking at the history of disability through a documentary, you might find like Crip Camp, for example, or you're looking at a color contrast checker, or anything else in between. There's so much out there that's a free resource to start those kind of thoughts and those processes of learning going. And then once you realise, essentially, how important it is and why it's important, that there'll be the natural steps to go. Okay, well I know that I need to get people around the table, and I know where they exist now. Um, so. I think that you're totally right like start the process of learning and then naturally that will give more questions which is only a good thing and more more places for you to look to to seek out more information but the idea is it's being an iterative process not a you have to have complete knowledge overnight because that becomes overwhelming and just means that people will probably not do anything at all so take those first baby steps
0: I think that's a really good point to end on thank you Dom and thank you Ruth
2: thank, thank you thank you for having me
0: You've been listening to a Desenyo podcast. For more podcasts, visit com. This podcast was hosted and edited by Designio. The panel was selected by Applied Wayfinding and Cameron PR. Editing was by Evie Hall and Lara Chapman, and hosting by me, India Block.